Liftoff of the mighty Delta IV heavy rocket with NASA's Parker Solar Probe, a daring mission to shed light on the mysteries of our closest star, the Sun. Welcome to a very, very special edition of Talking Space. I'm Gene McCulka. Sawyer Rosenstein will be around at uh, the end of tonight's broadcast. That humming sound you heard at the beginning... Right, that. That vibration is coming from our star, the sun. That's what it would sound like if you were able to go ahead and stand next to it. It was recorded by NASA's Solar Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO, spacecraft earlier this summer. However, that spacecraft is not the focus of tonight's broadcast. The focus is the Parker Solar Probe, which was launched on August 12, 2018. This is the third and final installment of our coverage of that, that, uh, that particular launch. Now, the spacecraft has already made a flyby of Venus. It's looked back at our home with its own, own imaging system and uh, taken a very, very dramatic look back at the Earth from its vantage point in and around that area. But yesterday, on October 29, 2018, the spacecraft at about 1.04 p.m. in the afternoon crossed the 26 million mile mark from the sun, making it the closest spacecraft that ever dared get that close to the sun. And it's going to get closer. I believe the distance, again, was about um, 26 million miles. Um, That breaks the old record that was set by the Helios 2 spacecraft back in April of 1976. The Parker Solar Probe now also holds the record, record excuse me, for the fastest object that we, that we humans have sent toward the sun, breaking again the old Helios 2 uh, record, um, also sent, set in April of 1976. That speed record is 153,454 miles an hour. Parker just broke that. So that gives you a good idea on how fast that spacecraft is really, really moving. Now, the Parker Solar Probe was named for Dr. Eugene Parker, the physicist that first revealed to us the supersonic nature of the solar wind. And this was the first time that NASA had broke tradition. Usually, it's named for 
scientists and physicists and engineers that have you know passed on and uh, uh, the spacecraft would be named for their memory and for their body of work. This time NASA kind of broke with that tradition. Uh, so it was already sort of a special special moment in history here. Now as part of the presentations in and around the launch of the of the mission, NASA gave uh, a really, really unique opportunity uh, to both us in the press and to folks that were attending the NASA social uh, in in concert with uh, with the launch. A closed door session was held that was just for the folks in the press and the NASA social attendees. And uh, we had 30 minutes to talk to the namesake of the Parker Solar Probe, Dr. Eugene Parker. The uh, event was hosted by uh, Dr. Thomas Zerbuchen, who was the um, Associate Administrator for, for Science at NASA. And um, the other host was uh, Dr. Nikki Fox, who was then uh, with the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, which is the uh, the uh, folks that built um, the uh, Parker Solar Probe back when it was still called Solar Probe Plus, both hosted that particular event. Uh, the event was not shown on NASA television. It was a closed-door session, as I indicated. NASA indicated, too, that they were going to go ahead and use bits and pieces of this but it's never been played in its entirety until now. The only changes I made to the interview itself were just to eliminate long pauses. Uh, the microphone was being passed around and you had to wait for people to go ahead and get the boom mic together and so on. So I kind of cut all of that out. Uh, and any other long pauses that there might have been just to keep you know things moving along. But pretty much what you're hearing is the actual event in its entirety, save for those long pauses. So without further ado, I give you one half hour with the namesake of the Parker Solar Probe, Dr. Eugene Parker. Thanks, everybody, and uh, thanks for your attention. We're here today with Dr. Eugene Parker. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Chicago, was there for a long time, and of course, wrote the seminal paper that predicted the supersonic nature of the solar wind, which of course is the way the solar wind really works. You're also here, Dr. Nikki Fox, who is the project scientist of the Parker Solar Probe. And we're here really to listen to you uh, Eugene, and I wanted to just ask you, just before we get into question and answer, you know, how does it feel here, being here and having a spacecraft out there on the launch pad with your name on it? Nobody has ever been asked that question, so how do you feel? Well, I was very flattered to, to hear about it, and it took me a while to get used to it, but uh, I guess some of the heat that is worn off now, and I can go back to ordinary life. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing that I really have always admired about uh, Eugene uh, Parker, uh, Gene, as every one of his friends refers him to, is 
is this tremendous humility. I'm going to I embarrass him here. I, I remember when he visited the university I used to work at, and I basically asked, how do I introduce you? And it's like, well, say I'm that guy who did this PhD, and then he couldn't get a job. <laughs> and he went to this other university, and then he wrote a paper, and he couldn't get it published. And then uh, his friend helped him, and the paper was published eventually. It all turned right, and he was a professor at the University of Chicago. He said, you should introduce me that way, because your students need to understand that just being successful doesn't mean it's always easy. Just being successful doesn't mean there's never a hurdle in front of you. It means to overcome these things, and that has always stuck with me. It's something that has guided me uh, before. And with uh, this one, I just want to just ask you, Nikki, is there, is there any thought you wanted to uh, pass along before we go and uh, do question and answer? Uh, so I would say I, I had the huge privilege of uh, taking Gene into the clean room at the Applied Physics Lab uh, while we were finishing up the spacecraft. And I actually got to say, Parker, meet Parker. <laughs> and so I would like to ask you, Gene, how did it feel to stand in front of that amazing piece of technology that is going to go and study the science that you boldly predicted in your paper? Well, I have the greatest admiration for the team of engineers and technicians who can put together so complicated an instrument as the solar probe and get it to work on call and you don't have any second chances, remember, once your instrument is in space, you can't tinker with it. And uh, yet these guys managed to come up with a working model every time, just about. Uh, I hesitate only because you must remember when I was young, and I was once, the, it, it was not a foregone conclusion that because you got your scientific instrument on an approved mission that you were going to succeed. The probability back in the 50s was of a successful launch was maybe 50%, but an awful lot of scientific careers went up in smoke on the launch pad uh, through nobody's fault, and it was just the process of learning all the crazy little things that can go wrong with a perfectly straightforward spacecraft and instruments. Nonetheless, they got a tremendous amount of science accomplished in those days, and uh, sort of takes my breath away when over, over the years I see how things have advanced. So here we are with a spacecraft rather more complicated than most of the, that have gone in the past, and I bet you it's going to work. Uh, I bet you it's going to perform exactly as intended. Uh, I have always said on a mission like this into new territory, you're going to be in for some surprises. Maybe not big ones, maybe only little ones, but you're going to find that your point of view will have to change to conform with the data. And uh, that's, that's the fun part. I once had an ear recorder ask me, well, what is it you think you're going to, what surprises do you think you're going to encounter? And of course, it's an unanswerable question until the mission actually goes and discovers them. All right. What I'm going to do is start taking questions. I'm going to just go back and forth. I'll start on the left here, and then I'll go back and forth one by one. Go ahead in the front row. I'll just wait for the microphone, please. Dr. Parker Marshall, members of the Associated Press. 
Um, have you been to rocket launches before? Will this be your first rocket launch? I don't know if you've seen it yet. And this is a big rocket, so does that, are you a little scared or nervous or worried about how things are gonna go? Well, I, I, I will believe there's a successful launch when there has been a successful launch, but I'll bet you 10 bucks it's a successful launch. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen one Have before? you seen a rocket launch before? Oh, many times on, on television. <laughs> <laughs> so this is but, the first time. Never, never in the flesh. Wow. All right. And, and uh, Dr. Parker is going out to see the, the rocket tomorrow, and so he will get to see uh, the beautiful Delta Four Heavy, and also, of course, the big Parker Solar Probe logo on the side. That's pretty cool. So we'll go on this side. Yes, back there. Hi, my name's Cassandra. I'm a freelance designer. Um, I had a question. I'm only 22, and I just started working for myself, and you guys are really awesome, and I admire your hard work. So what's something that you would say to someone who's working hard towards a goal that may seem a little impossible, because this seems impossible to you. Many people are around you. What, what advice would you give to somebody who's starting their career um, and maybe having a few problems? How would you tell them to keep going? What advice and guidance and inspiration would you give them? Well, I'm, I would suggest that first, you don't want to get into science. And <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to get into science unless it really fascinates you at the work level. Yeah. Uh, you, you can answer, you can judge yourself when you're still a student. Uh, do you enjoy simply learning about new stuff, uh, which, of which there is, of course, infinitely much, it seems, but do you take pleasure uh, in, in your studies? If you get satisfaction from them, uh, then I would seriously consider a career in science. Uh, I emphasize this because your training in science is to force your stubborn mind to conform to the facts and concepts of the science that you're doing. And that, for some reason, the human brain does not give in willingly to that process, as many of us have discovered when we were in school. So, I would say whether you go into a, a career in science and what field you choose uh, is something that only you can decide. It's sort of like deciding whether you're going to get married or not. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's a lifelong decision and uh, requires really conforming your thoughts to the requirements of the task at hand. Beautiful answer. Take that. Next question. I'm Dr. Parker. Thank you for taking your time to be with us today. My name is Jim Siegel. I'm with Spaceflight Insider. And I'm curious about, it's been 60 years since you read, so since you wrote your seminal paper. So uh, during that time, uh, how did you feel about whether it was going to be possible ultimately and technically to be able to, to do the kind of probe that we're going to see here starting on, uh, on Sunday, Saturday morning? Well, the concept of a solar probe appeared what, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And I, I know it appeared at JPL and probably APL and a bunch of other uh, laboratories because it's a basic, obvious thing to do. 
Uh, it's also a very expensive thing to do, and uh, that the point is that somebody at JPL picked up the ball and took it as a challenge, and let me rephrase the statement, what's the closest you can come to the sun and have your spacecraft survive in passing by? That would be the minimum solar accomplishment. Uh, it has the obvious objection that, well, you get only a few hours of observations, what can you do? But if you reduce the problem to how close can you get, that's what it amounts to. And uh, some very smart people went to work and came up with a spacecraft and a lot of carbon, as one of the early speakers emphasized. And we had the solar probe, which could take a plunge past the sun into about four, so four solar radii and back out again, and still the spacecraft would still be functioning to a large degree. Uh, I should say, I think in talking about being close to the sun, the heat shield that you build, I think it should be mentioned that it is, the sunward side of that will be incandescent. It will be quite red, red hot, I guess would be the, the thing to say. And uh, it's quite an accomplishment, and I don't know the people that developed this concept, but they should be proud of what they did. Unfortunately, it's a very expensive development, and as I mentioned, it has the shortcoming that to go whisking by the sun at four solar radii, you'd get a few hours of, of critical data while you were close. You'd do a lot of observations on the way, but it's not something where you can really study the, the problems at hand. The problems at hand are, of course, to study the mechanisms that heat the corona to a million degrees. They're very simple. Friction from some kind of waves. Uh, you can do this with your hands. Just You can get the surface of your hands well above body temperature. And uh, But having said that vague statement that it's friction from waves is not a very precise explanation of anything. Uh, the other things you're interested in are what are called coronal mass ejections. A magnetic explosion near the sun in the corona for a twisted up magnetic field just finally said, I can't take it anymore, and it unwound itself explosively. <coughs> Uh, that's the kind of thing that's really new, and uh, to say that there's a surprise, it's all a surprise at that level. So we're going to have surprises for sure, but small ones. We're going to have maybe some big ones, but uh, it's an exploratory mission, and I think it helps to mention that the sunward surface of your heat shield will be incandescent. And the fact that it's carbon doesn't mean it'll burn because there isn't any air in, in space. So the heat shield will hold up for a long time. That's great. Okay, next question, please. Hi, I'm Leo Neil Comer from Instagram. I just wanted to know what first inspired you to focus your research on the sun? What, is, what inspired you to focus your research on the sun? Oh, uh, well, a number of factors come into play. 
first place when you choose when you choose a field of uh, research or when you narrow your efforts down to a simple simple thing like the sun uh, you're in your own mind you have decided that I'll bet you I can figure it out there's no way you get any data and you can't figure it out probably but uh, if there's enough data you can figure it out and I got a I got a job offer from John Simpson at the University of Chicago who was interested in studying the output of particles from the sun and that's how I got into the field I mean that's probably the simplest answer to your question and there's, there was lots of data. This is an interesting subject, which I won't attempt to go into. Over the last 150 years, people have been working on this because the sun is sitting up there, spitting out particles by unknown mechanisms, accomplishing aurora, magnetic fluctuations, magnetic storms, and so forth. And it, it was right in your face. and. Uh, it, it was clearly a field that was, was likely you could make a lot of progress. Although I will have to make one remark because this continues to amuse me. When I was a student about 1948, I got interested in sunspots. They're just a curiosity. And I read up on them. There's quite a bit known about them, but they're, they're functioning. Why we have sunspots is unknown. And I looked at that and I read about sunspots and I thought, well, we ought to be able to knock this one over a couple of years. That was in the late 40s, and here we are in 2018. I cannot explain to you why the sun is obliged to have spots. Add insult to injury, it has been discovered that some stars have spots or dark, dark areas on them that are half the disk of the star itself. And so it's a complete mystery. And uh, I have gotten away from it. I found other easier problems to work with. <laughs> Although I continue to be fascinated by the sunspot. And actually, we'll, we'll just note that um, G mentioned John Simpson. And of course, John Simpson was the person who chaired the, the committee that gave the advice and guidance to the newly forming agencies in 1958. So his report, it was co-chaired by James Van Allen, was the one that gave the big sort of 14 goals and targets to the agencies. And one of those 14 was, of course, the solar probe. And Jean is responsible for that being part of that report. I wanted to add uh, one comment that just occurs to me, you know, to, because there's like three questions that are here, and I feel they have similar type of thought processes behind them, whether it's technology or whether it's how do I achieve a massive goal or, you know. And, and the, the hard part is, right, it, it's this, it's like walking on a mountain ridge, right? On the one side is the irrelevant, because it's easy to do. Everybody else can do it, and you know, kind of it's small steps forward. You know, I mean, it's you know, on the other side of it is the impossible. So it's yeah, it's a problem. Perhaps it even looks like it's it's on this side of the ridge, but it's over here. And what really takes wisdom and experience and tremendous talent, whether it's in engineering or whether it's in in science, is to find that kind of rich of innovation or rich of discovery that, you know, where you really can make progress, finding the right problem. And, you know, that it's one of those things that, that we learn from tremendous, uh, tremendously successful scientists or tremendously success, successful engineers of the type you heard. 
But it's really, it's one of those things, it's, it's hard to teach exactly. You have to learn, and you can fall down on this side or on that side from time to time before you learn where the important problems are and you lock into them. And so that, that's really a, an amazing experience once you find one of those. Next question. Uh, thank you, uh, Ken Kramer, Space Up Close and Rocket Step. Uh, thanks again for, for doing this. My question is, can you take us back uh, 60 years? Tell us why your papers and theories were so controversial, all right? And how did that change? How did the science community come to accept it? Thanks. Well, when I was young, that is 20s, and starting out, uh, most of the ideas I expressed were either trivial or they involve a new twist to something and were disbelieved. This went on for a few years, but it gradually worn off. And uh, the paper on the solar wind, which two reviewers rejected, uh, but the editor accepted it because, as he told me later, a lot he didn't. He was skeptical that I was right, but on the other hand, he could find no error in my arguments, and he give it a try and people can criticize it. That's what publication is all about. I propose something, you you find, aha, but you're overlooking this or that. And uh, I guess that's that's the most of what I can, how I can answer your question. After you've been around a while, uh, there will still be criticism and disbelief, but it will be more subdued. Uh, they won't, the, the referee will not not likely to make smart remarks like with my first solar wind paper. Well, you know, you really ought to go to the library and read up on this before you try to write about it so you don't make these silly mistakes. And uh, after you've been through several of these, they begin to back off a little bit, not entirely. Uh, I wrote a paper which I thought was rather good on the dynamical effects of cosmic rays on the structure of the galaxy. Straightforward little problem. <laughs> the referee started his report with a remark, well, I had always thought that Parker was competent, but, and <laughs> but then he launched into a, a tirade that had no substance to it. Uh, it's easy to write a negative report. Well, this is ridiculous. I mean, it, surely you, you should know what, the, you can go on and on and on and on. Um, and that often happens. If you're a young person, you can lose your career. Uh, I got, partly I got fired from my first job. I would have been fired anyway, but I, I well, let's see, how, how can I put it? Um, I run my writing up a couple of papers that had some, novel aspects, and in my own opinion, one of them was wrong, the other one was right, but the reviewer never understood what was wrong because he never understood what was right. So uh, that will fade away with experience, but it was used by the department where I had a temporary job to uh, let me go at the end of that period of time. So be prepared to get kicked in the teeth a few times. I wrote an article some years ago on this subject. Uh, 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 let's see, how do I want to, do I want to put it? Uh, well, anyway, the, the point I wanted to make was that I put as the title 
on the martial art of scientific publication. <laughs> and those, a lot of the responsibility lies with editors who are often faced with a negative review of a paper which is obviously not negative, and uh, they don't dare, uh, the referee says this paper is nonsense, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, well, uh, the it is a fact that when an editor contradicts an eminent referee who has given his opinion as thumbs down on a paper, the eminent referee may be extremely angry when the editor goes ahead and publishes the paper. It's a direct insult to the ego of the eminent referee, and things can get all tangled up. So uh, if, you're, if you're going into science, at least the parts of it I've seen, you better be prepared for a fight. If there is criticism, think about it carefully because the referee might have a point, you know. But if you've gone over it very carefully, uh, it's a chance perhaps to improve your wording. And, uh, but if you feel it's right, then stand up. You've got physics on your side, and that's pretty, pretty good. Uh, pretty good position to be in. Do, do you mind if I add one more part to your answer? Of course, and that is. Once data came back from space about the solar wind, it was clear that A, it was supersonic, and B, always present, absolutely consistent with the predictions that you had made. That also helps, right? <laughs> <laughs> to figure out whether who's right here. You know, I mean, that you know, pressure data so often, uh, new data uh, from missions like the ones we're uh, launching here uh, are the ultimate referee to what's right and what's wrong. We ask nature and nature gives us an answer. Was it Mariner 2? Yeah. Mariner 2, yes. All right, I'll ask for another question over here. So uh, earlier, you you introduce were, yourself? Uh, Dr. Fox was talking about the, uh, the this area where we are moving from the United, oh, sorry, Mary Robinette Kowal, uh, science fiction writer. Um, so you had talked about the area that, we, that you're moving from the magnetic field into being more influenced by the plasma. And I was wondering if you guys could talk about kind of what, what sort of things you are anticipating happening and what sort of things that you're looking at going, we have no idea what's going to happen here. So what's the importance of getting so close uh, that we go from the transition region from where the magnetic field is dominant to where the plasma is dominant? And what, what do you think we're going to find? What do you personally think we're going to find when we get into that transition region? When we were in that transition region, let's say that the and so we're really I to pick the distance from this mission. Uh, we're checking out the hydrodynamics that ex explains that produces the acceleration. And that part, the, the basic momentum acceleration is simply a, a simple equation. And I don't think we'll, I'd be surprised if we find a surprise there. But we'll see, we'll see some of the details. Remember, we make calculations which are basically correct, but you can't apply them exactly to a situation in nature because there's always some effect elsewhere that are influencing and so forth. I expect that part to come through, you might say, routine surprises, which is a contradiction. But uh, the rest of it is new territory. Why is the solar corona on the outer atmosphere of the sun 
at a million or two degrees, when the sun itself is only 5,600. It isn't because of sunshine, that's for sure. <laughs> the, I, I, uh, I guess the other important thing is the explosive aspect of a lot of magnetic activity near the sun. Uh, a fascinating subject. It's superficially terribly complicated. Uh, one tries to reduce it to basic effects, but we don't have any real data to get our teeth into. And it's that things about the activity that where we really need to learn and see if our simple models are catching the right things or is it different. Again, we don't know until we make the flight and have a year or two to think about the data. All right, we'll go for the last question and I'm going to just toss it open in the room. Where's the last question? Over there at the NASA shirt. Hi, my name is uh, Denise Wright. I'm with the NASA Social Group. I am a science educator. I'm thrilled to be here. Back in 1859, we had what was referred to as the Carrington event. It was a major solar event that, you know, obviously affected us here on Earth. Um, how is this research going to, is this research going to help us being able to better forecast something like that to happen in the future um, to us on Earth? How is it, how is all this research going to impact us so living here on this planet? Thank you. How is the research that Parker Solar Probe will do close to the sun? help us going to do better at predicting the impacts of, say, a Carrington event such as we saw in 1859. Oh, you mean a super Yeah, so how would we do better at predicting what the impact here on Earth of a very large space weather event that's happening on the sun? We will simply watch it happen and gather all the facts together that we can and hope that we can begin to form a clearer picture of what's going on. So if I, if I can add to that, so if you if you think of the Earth and the Sun as a system, and you know we've done tremendous uh, research, we know an awful lot about that system, but right now we don't know what the physics, the real physics is that is driving that and powering the solar wind. And so by doing this research, we will go and we will find out what the right sort of the right coding is to put in that Sun Earth model. And now you, when you understand the driver, you really, it's like the last piece of the puzzle when you lay it out like that. You will make a transformational improvement in the ability to predict the impact because you're now really fully understanding what's driving and powering the solar wind that's coming to and impacting the planet. How much, uh, how much knowledge do we have right now? Um, if we know something's coming our way, we're going to move the satellites and things like that. So how much prediction time do we currently have? Or something like that. So it, it depends on the event and how fast it's moving, obviously. Um, I mean, we would normally say we see something big on the sun and then we would expect to see impacts two to three days later here at, at Earth. We know that events happen, can happen much quicker and they can be much faster. Um, there are sort of different pieces of the event. Some travel at the mean flare is obviously the speed of light, so eight minutes. Uh, the, the particles, the very high energy particles I talked about, they're traveling at roughly half the speed of light. So they're getting to the Earth in about 20 minutes. Um, but the big event, the main event that's coming from the corona is taking about two to three days. Right now, if you liken it to the weather predicting, you know, we would say, well, when we've seen this type of event before, eight times out of 10, it does this. You know, eight times, when we see these clouds, eight times out of 10, it's going to rain in Orlando. 
and we would say so we've got an 80% certainty. And that's kind of where we are with our, our knowledge right now. We know we've seen events, and this is the type of thing they do here on Earth. And so when the events look similar, we predict that. Now we'll be able to go and put the physics in those models. All right, thank you so much for that uh, answer. tell you again how excited we are tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Gene Parker is going to go out there and meet his spacecraft, his rocket, ready to go. And with that, you know, his tremendous legacy uh, will have a culmination point, but frankly, it will just be the beginning because, as he said, surprises will continue, surprises will start, the surprises that we in science live for and they are excited about because it's so amazing to learn something new about nature. Dr. Fox, Dr. Parker, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So I don't know about you, but re-listening to that, I still get chills. That man is so sharp and so brilliant and just persevering through people denying his paper and still kind of laughing it off all these years later. And to know that days after this was recorded, he would have the honor of seeing his first ever rocket launch carrying his spacecraft is amazing. I'm trying to just get into that man's mind and, and kind of understand where he was uh, not only uh, – <laughs> Back then, in 1958, when he first postulated that theory and everybody kind of ridiculed him, but he basically said, hey, I've got physics on my side, and, and soldiered on. And uh, lo and behold, here we are uh, in 2018 uh, with him at, at, uh, at, at the age of 92 years old, watching his namesake heading to the sun to go ahead and explore the solar wind that he first found. And you want to talk about somebody who's lived an extraordinary, you know, who's living an extraordinary life, and his very first launch that he ever saw, the very first uh, rocket that he saw leave leave this planet in person, was. His own was his own was was the one that uh, that had his namesake on board. Just a lot of mixed. I I just can't believe the the, the emotions that that must have been going through through that man's head. And uh, as as Nikki Fox um, had had indicated in her uh, um, words uh, on this program in the, in the last episode, he went ahead, shook his fist in the air, and said, "We did it." And uh, was you, you could tell that there was just so much pride in that that one moment right there. And um, even uh, Dr. Zubukin had had indicated though that uh, Dr. Parker is an extraordinarily modest individual. But uh, hearing this man's insights and not only about science but about taking on challenges and persevering and what his advice will be to 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 the next generation coming up. Is I mean, sort of throughout the entire interview, my 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 I was getting goosebumps and 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 the and the hair was you know just standing up in the back of my neck. 
And you're not just saying that figuratively. You literally at one point just held your arm out to me, and there were actual physical goosebumps on it. We're not exaggerating here. I told you. I mean, I mean, this this man is is amazing, and and I mean, I'm not just you know going all fanboy here. This is this is this was this was a moment for the ages, and I am just honored that we were able to bring it to this audience, and hopefully. Somebody out there will be taking these these sage words and taking them to heart and listening to them and applying them to something that they may be working on or some other endeavor that may, they may be, may be pursuing and going ahead and pursuing it with abandon and just changing changing the course of the world as, as, uh, as we know it. And uh, it, it's... <laughs> And I'm 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 just thinking about it. I'm I'm getting a little bit more and more speechless as we go forward. But uh, uh, again, I'm I'm just I was just so privileged to be in that room for this event, and I was I'm doubly privileged to bring it to my listeners here. And I hope that uh, that everybody that heard this this particular episode got as much out of it as uh, Sawyer, you and I and I think everybody in that room that day got out of it or even more so exactly and again uh, no cutting up on this we don't want to interrupt the beauty of it and while NASA TV thinks they may have the highlights I think the whole thing was a highlight and I'm glad we got to air all of it and we hope you enjoyed it and I think that's the perfect way to put a little bow on top of our Parker Solar Probe coverage. That is, until seven years from now when it actually meets up at its closest point with the sun. <laughs> Indeed, which, Sawyer. Which we hope to be on the air still for that, because we are approaching, we're in season 10, approaching 10 years. I think we can do it. Yeah, and uh, before we go, Sawyer, I want to go ahead and, and reach out a, a, a huge thank you to uh, some folks that helped us out along the way. Sawyer, you're a bunch of colleagues over there uh, i know robin senegal gave us a, a little bit of a hand uh, uh with uh with some of the material here and some of uh some of the stuff that we collected i know uh and also a a, a big uh thank you to uh Pranvera haseni who went ahead and uh grabbed our uh, our trusty uh, dslr and went up to the roof of the uh, vehicle assembly building for us and uh, uh, was was uh, kind of a, a member of our team as we went forward during the coverage. So uh, again, thank you to uh, to her as well, and a huge thank you to uh, to the folks that uh, that helped us out along the way. Some folks over at Princeton University, thank you so much for uh, for being accommodating, and uh, I, just just a, a huge thank you to everybody that was associated with uh, with helping us get the story to you and i hope you enjoyed these this this little bit of a trilogy we've never really done this before in a in a launch capacity before but we thought more about this mission and wanting to go ahead and give it the full attention it deserved and really really tell give all of you uh, a good insight into what those few days were like at uh, at uh, uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station as we got this this magnificent mission to the sun off the ground and uh, and forward uh, into uh, a place where it can help us. Exactly, and again, a huge shout out and thank you as always to the folks at the NASA Kennedy Space Center press site. They're always fantastic and have helped us out 
throughout the years and continue to do so. Thank you to them. Thank you to everyone with the mission. And uh, thank you for joining me on this journey again, Gene. It's nice to have you back at the press site. Oh, Sawyer, it was an honor to be back there. And uh, I will try not to go ahead and, and be too long <laughs> between between missions. I mean, the last time I think I was out there was, was, was for OA4. And uh, it was... Yes, you and I were there at the end of 2015 for that. Yeah, exactly. So I will try to make it a more of a habit to get out there. I, I, you know, I can't let you have all the fun. But um, we're... There are, are some some intriguing uh, uh, news stories that will be coming out of there next year. We intend to be there, and uh, we intend to be a part of that. And uh, I can't wait to bring that uh, to everybody. But above all, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for keeping us going. Because, uh, again, we, we try to go ahead and we try to bring you the best. And hopefully this, this trilogy you found to be... Uh, one of the uh, the better things we've done on this program. So, uh, again, thanks. We hope so, and we'll be back to normal episodes starting again for episode 10. 10, right? <laughs> 10, 10, 10 yes. yes. Yes, we hope to bring that back for episode 10. Well, I'm sorry, yeah, this is so new. Yeah, so 10, 10. And we... Uh, so we hope to be back to normal episodes again for episode 1010, but we thought we had to bring in this three-part special, and we apologize to Kat and Mark, but Gene and I were so fresh off this launch, we just wanted to get something out to you guys, and we just happened to get all three of these parts out, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed them, and we hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.